0: Jan, say something to that. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, try that one. Okay, you're picking me up now? Keep closer. How's that? For most rail fans, the easiest and most prolific method of documenting railroad activity was usually accomplished by taking photographs and movies. But as we've heard with the recordings we featured from John Prophet, the use of a wire recorder in the mid to late 40s allowed railfans to bring home the biggest, if not the most important characteristic of a train, how it sounded, especially if the train was pulled by a steam engine. Making sound recordings of trains is a method of preservation that still persists, to this day. Dozens of new recording formats have come and gone, from the wire recorder to the cassette deck, digital audio tape to mini disc, and now digital recording devices that fit in the palm of your hand. All are capable of recording sounds precisely as the microphone hears them. And every recording is a preserved moment in time. I'm Aaron Heverin, and welcome to Living with Steam Extra, where between full episodes of the podcast, I'll share some railroad sound recordings from sources other than John Prophet, because by the mid to late 50s, John wasn't the only one standing next to a railroad track with a recording device of some kind waiting for a train to pass by. 1973 happened to be the 150th anniversary of the Delaware & Hudson Railroad. To celebrate this momentous occasion in railroad history, Ross planned to do what he did best, Assemble a very special train to commemorate the founding of the D&H. Ross was a pretty inventive and determined guy. He was a rail fan extraordinaire who specialized in passenger trains pulled by steam-powered locomotives, even though it was the 1970s and the era of the steam engine had long since passed. Now, you should know that Ross wasn't talking about the kind of train you have sitting on a 4x8 sheet of plywood in your basement. No, Ross was into railroad preservation in a very big way. He organized and ran very special excursion trains over existing rail lines using restored steam engines as the motive power. Now, I get it. It's hard to imagine such a thing being possible in the days of CSX and Norfolk Southern, where special excursion trains are rare and very few and far between if they happen at all. The price of a ticket alone for one of these excursions could be the same as a ticket to Disney. But in the late 1960s, these trips happened, and quite frequently. In 1966, Ross Rowland Jr. formed what he called the High Iron Company. And this pet project of his would be the driving force behind some of the most successful railfan excursion trips in the United States. Ross's goal was to create these special trains to commemorate historical events. Now, bear in mind that the late 60s into the early 70s was not a good time for American railroads, which makes it seem all the more unlikely that this type of thing could be pulled off. But Ross persevered. One of his biggest excursion trains was the Golden Spike Centennial train in 1969. According to an article from the February 2022 issue of Classic Trains magazine, quote, The Golden Spike Centennial Limited was born, in promoter Ross Rowland Jr.'s mind, as a reaction to the Association of American Railroads not planning anything special to mark the 100th anniversary of the nation-uniting event on the new transcontinental railroad at Promontory, Utah in 1869. The apathy was perhaps typical of the Class I railroads of the era, still stifled under regulation and trying to get out of the passenger business and stay solvent. In the early 1970s, the railroad industry as a whole was in serious trouble and decline. The disastrous merger of the Pennsylvania and New York Central created the Penn Central, which was a failure almost from its inception. The Erie-Lackawanna, which came about through the merger of the Erie Railroad and the Delaware-Lackawanna and Western, was struggling to remain profitable in the wake of duplicated and often parallel trackage. The Lehigh Valley was bleeding money. And in Buffalo and western New York alone, they sold their entire right-of-way to the New York State Thruway Authority to help stop the bleeding. These were also the early days of Amtrak, which was created by the Congressional Rail Passenger Service Act in 1971 to consolidate the 20 remaining passenger railroads in the United States into one. By 1976, most railroads in the Northeast had merged into an entity known as Consolidated Rail or Conrail. Regardless of what the major railroad companies were doing to try to keep their rails above water, Ross Rowland was determined to bring back a piece of railroad history, steam engines pulling passenger trains. Now it goes without saying that Ross Rowland and his High Iron Company's Golden Spike Centennial Limited was very successful. Classic Trains went on to say, quote, The High Iron Company was restoring nickel plate 284759 to operating condition and the Berkshire would pull several excursions on the Norfolk and Western, Western Maryland, and Penn Central prior to the Golden Spike train. Through the late 60s and into the early 70s, Ross was connected with and operated several U.S. excursion steam locomotives such as Canadian Pacific 1278, the Nickel Plate Road 759, the Reading 2101, and the Chesapeake and Ohio 614. I'll feature more on Ross Rowland's High Iron Company excursions in future episodes of Living with Steam. But for now, it's the Reading 2101's sister engine that we're going to talk more about, Engine 2102. As I said earlier, 1973 was the 150th anniversary of the founding of the Delaware and Hudson Railroad. To help celebrate the anniversary of the D&H, In May, the High Iron Company put together a special train called the New York State Express. On Memorial Day weekend, the train would run between Hoboken, New Jersey, and Binghamton, New York, a distance of around 175 miles today if you made it by car. The train would run over the tracks of the Erie Lackawanna, which were actually the former Erie Railroad outbound from Hoboken, and the former Lackawanna tracks from Binghamton, southeast through Scranton, Pennsylvania, and back to Hoboken. Number 2102 was a Northern Class 484 T1-type engine, constructed in 1945 for the Reading Railroad. It mostly served as an engine to pull coal trains, but was retired from Revenue Service in 1956, which is around the same time that Reading removed steam engines from its motive power rosters. Unlike most steam engines during that period of time, 2102 wasn't scrapped, but rather held on to by the Reading as a backup for the three other T1s they had on hand to pull what the Reading called their iron horse rambler excursions. A Wikipedia article about 2102 states, "After the Rambles ended in 1964, number 2102 was sold to Steam Tours Incorporated of Akron, Ohio." to spend the next 23 years pulling various fan trips in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, and Midwest. In 1968, number 2102 ran an excursion on Grand Trunk Western Trackage when a minor derailment damaged its oil lubricators on the second driving axle. Consequently, the locomotive was put aside and it sat idle for the next three years. In 1972, Ross and his High Iron Company sponsored several excursions from Reading to Harrisburg on the Reading's main line to recreate the Iron Horse Rambles, and number 2102 was loaned to High Iron Company to be used to pull the trains, after it had been pulled out of storage and repaired. So now, let's fast forward to May of 1973 and the special train the High Iron Company would run to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the founding of the Delaware and Hudson Railway. D&H was still an entity under its own name in the early 70s, but the company hadn't hung on to any of their steam engines, and having this special anniversary train pulled by a D&H diesel engine was out of the question. Well, since there were no D&H steam engines around in 1973, Reading 2102 was sent to the D&H's Colony New York shops to have some makeup applied in order to resemble D&H K-62. 484 number 302, with elephant-eared smoke deflectors, a recessed headlight, raised bug-eye marker lights, and a DNA-style number board. Now, just to put this fact out there, the DH retained some semblance of their own identity until 1991, when they were purchased by the Canadian Pacific, but that's another story. But on Memorial Day weekend in 1973, which was on the 26th and 27th of May, the New York State Express, pulled by D&H 302, headed out from Hoboken for the close-to-three-hour journey to Binghamton. And yes, multiple recordings of the train were made. But what we're going to hear now were not recordings made by John Prophet. I had said in previous episodes of Living with Steam that although John was an incredibly prolific documenter of railroad activity in Buffalo and western New York, by the mid-1950s, He was not the only one taking pictures, shooting movies, or making sound recordings. Another prominent member of the Niagara Frontier chapter of the NRHS was just as passionate about making photographs, movies, and audio recordings as John was. This gent's name was Jim Van Brocklin, and many of us just called him Van. I met Jim around the same time I met John, in 1991, and like John, Jim became a very good friend. But while John Prophet's favorite railroads were the Pennsylvania and New York Central, Jim gravitated more to the Nickel Plate Road and the Canadian railroads that ran in southern Ontario but also came into Buffalo, specifically the Canadian National and the Canadian Pacific. And just like John in his younger days, Jim had no problem driving all over the place to make that perfect recording of a train pulled by a steam engine. Jim Van Brocklin started making his recordings in 1956 using a portable reel-to-reel tape recorder, the manufacturer of which I do not know. But unlike John, who kept detailed, but sometimes cryptic notes on a logbook, Jim didn't take any notes. He preferred to indicate what he was recording right on the tape he was using, simply by recording his voice. When Jim first let me hear his many open-reel tapes, I was dumbfounded by the incredible clarity and fidelity his tapes exhibited. Now John's wire recordings were great, don't get me wrong, but anyone who used magnetic tape was really taking the preservation of railroad sounds to an entirely new sonic level. Now since Jim didn't take any written notes, it was very difficult to retrace his steps in order to determine exactly what was on this one reel of tape. Initially, I thought the entire hour-long reel only featured recordings of the New York State Express on Memorial Day weekend of 1973. However, Jim left some clues to the fact that this wasn't completely true. At the end of one of the first recordings on the reel, Jim put his voice on the tape by saying, this was made west of Mechanicville. Now this statement drove me crazy because Mechanicville is northeast of Binghamton and wasn't on the Erie or the Lackawanna. It was on the D&H. So what was this bit that Jim recorded west of Mechanicville? It was still D&H number 302 pulling a train, but how and where was this particular recording made? It turns out that Reading 2102, disguised as D&H number 302, began celebrating the D&H anniversary in April, when the locomotive was part of a two-day double-headed excursion with Canadian Pacific 462 number 1278, which masqueraded as D&H number 653. For that trip, the train ran from Colony, New York, to Montreal, Canada, on the D&H tracks. This trip is what Jim recorded as a sort of test run prior to the Memorial Day event. And these are the recordings we're going to hear now. Additional recordings of the High Iron Company New York State Express from May 26th to 27th, 1973, will be heard in a future episode. When I first heard the recordings, I was playing them back on an old Sony schoolroom-type reel-to-reel deck which only had mono output. At the time, I assumed Jim had a small consumer-grade tape recorder that most folks would have used to send taped audiograms back and forth to their loved ones. Well, this wasn't true at all. By the time Jim made these 1973 recordings, he had a stereo tape recorder and two quality microphones to go with it. So it goes without saying, the recordings you are about to hear are sonically incredible. Jim had his family with him on May 26, 1973, and the entire Van Brocklin family chased the train from just outside Hoboken to Binghamton. From there, they went home to Buffalo. Listen for Jim's scream of excitement at the tail end of one of the recordings after he got exactly what he was looking for. Must have mechanics. With. We got it! <laughs> Boy, that ought sound fantastic. You've been listening to Living with Steam Extra. The show is written and produced by me, Aaron Heverin. For additional content, such as pictures, maps, videos, and other information related to each episode, please head over to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Steam. Living with Steam, the podcast, can be found on multiple platforms including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now on Amazon Music. If you enjoy Living with Steam, please rate the program wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at livingwithsteam at gmail.com or simply drop a comment on the Living with Steam Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.